Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Boris Jovanov. I grew up in a Seventh-day Adventist household, going to a Seventh-day Adventist church. And after my conversion, I fully, completely, with all my heart, believed that my unwise decisions had shut the doors for me to be able to be in full-time ministry. And so I found and heard of a small Bible college over in America called Mission College of Evangelism. A gentleman by the name of Louis Torres ran it. And I just wanted to learn how to be able to practically get some tools to be able to go back, work in my dad's factory, and then in my free time, use that to be able to teach people the beautiful things that I've been learning about scripture that have been changing my heart and my life. When I got to Mission College, there was a significant window there where I, I thought I was a part of, I thought I was at some weirdly offshoot, radical, conservative, borderline cultish place. Um, they were really nice people but outwardly they kind of held to these kind of really rigid rules like the girls could only wear long dresses, us boys always had to have pants on. Um, sorry? That is a good thing. But I'm just saying shorts were a big no-no. Um, the only time we were allowed to be in kind of non-formal attire was at 5.30 when we all had to wake up and then exercise in the gymnasium. And even then it had to be like long tracksuit pants. Everyone was vegan. They only fed us two meals a day that were vegan. And you know what, none of that really bothered me. I was just kind of like, yeah, fine, whatever. Like people have their preferences, this is their preference. I don't, I don't really know. And you gotta understand, I really knew nothing about scripture. Every day I was just learning more and more and more. But the part that convinced me the most that I had kind of, am getting trained at some wacky place was they kept talking about this lady, Ellen White. Now I grew up in a Seventh-day Adventist house. So I'd go into a Seventh-day Adventist church and never in my life had I heard that name. And it was a context where over and over and over and over again, you heard things like the Spirit of Prophecy says, or Mrs. White says, or this and that. And I was just kind of like, I didn't know my Bible to be able to disagree with what she's saying. And I didn't really care that this was kind of so just kind of, I felt so just ultra conservatively strange because they were willing to teach me how to be able to share my faith. And I was just like, that's fine. I'm only here for three months. But as time went on, we actually did a class called the Spirit of Prophecy. And I learned that they weren't, these way out there Adventists, I just wasn't an Adventist. <laughs> 
I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know that we as a people believed in the prophetic gift. In fact, I think a lot of people in this community, when they hear the word prophet, it comes with so much baggage and comes with so much associations that the moment someone says, oh, you believe in the writings of a prophet, you just get in this kind of like kooky, right? Just kind of this cult, cult type thing. But as we studied and learned and studied and learned, it became so clear to me that the Bible is unapologetic about how God uses prophets. In fact, it's really interesting that there is this stigma against prophets and they use the Bible to try be like, we've got the Bible, we don't need prophets, but they ignore the whole fact that the Bible is nothing other than the writing of the prophets. <laughs> In Jesus' day, the Jews said, we believe in Moses. We are disciples of Moses. In other words, they were saying, whoa, 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 whoa. We've got the Bible. We've got the writings of Moses. We don't need these prophets, yeah? But I want us to look at Scripture and commit to just following what Scripture says. And if Scripture says it, we believe it. If Scripture doesn't, get, get, get it away. Amen? And so I want us to turn our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as we look at the spirit of prophecy. As this, uh, what are we looking at? The spirit of prophecy. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll begin in verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and what verse are we beginning in? <clears throat> the Bible says this. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed him. What is Paul reminding them of? What does Paul not want them to be ignorant of? The Exodus. Yes? He's saying, hey guys, I really don't want you guys to be ignorant of the Exodus. I don't want you to forget how that they were under the cloud and how they went through the Red Sea and how they were provided food and how they were provided water, yeah? Why? Why is Paul so animate that he does not want them to be ignorant of the Exodus? Well, if you look at verse 11, the Bible says this, all these things happened. What, what are all these things? The Exodus, yeah? It says all these things happened to them as what? What's that word? Examples. And they were written for our admonition. Whose admonition? upon whom the ends of the ages have what? Come. So according to Paul, he doesn't want Christians, because he's writing to Christians, according to Paul, <clears throat> he doesn't want Christians to be ignorant of the Exodus. Why doesn't Paul want Christians to be ignorant of the Exodus? Well, because the Exodus is an example for what it's going to be like for those whom the end of the age comes upon, yes? In other words, the experience of ancient Israel is a lesson for modern Israel. Yes? Now look at Hosea chapter 12 and verse 13. Speaking of the Exodus. 
By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, and by a prophet, he was preserved. How did God lead Israel out of Egypt? By a prophet, and how did God preserve Israel? By a prophet, and according to Paul, the Exodus, this journey of Israel, is an example for who? Us. So would it be crazy, would it be so unbiblical, would it be outrageous to say, hold up, if the Exodus is biblically an example for those who are living at the end of time, and God brought Israel out by a prophet and God preserved Israel by a prophet, would it be completely unbiblical to say, oh, maybe that God will still have the prophetic ministry at the end of time? Would that be biblically consistent, yes or no, church? It would. In fact, when you go to Revelation chapter 12, the Revelation chapter 12 is a very fascinating chapter. It essentially tracks God's people all the way from the Old Testament through to the New Testament, right to the very end before Jesus comes back. And in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17, this is how God's people, that last church, his final movement, this is how the Bible describes them. It says that the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. And look at how it describes them. Who do what? They, do, they have two characteristics. They do what? They keep the commandments of God and have what? The testimony of Jesus. Now, the first one seems to be pretty self-explanatory, yeah? What does it mean to keep the commandments of God? Well, it means to keep his commandments. But what is the testimony of Jesus? This is a kind of a strange saying. How do you have the testimony of Jesus? Well, let's be people of the book. And let's allow the Bible to explain what this means. So in the very same book, the book of Revelation, chapter 19 and verse 10, Daniel is receiving this vision from an angel and something comes upon Daniel where he's so overwhelmed with what he's seeing that he starts worshiping the angel. And then him and the angel have this interaction and there's a really important lesson here that we can learn to gain understanding about what it means to have the testimony of Jesus. The Bible says this, it says, and I fell at his feet to worship him. What was he doing to the angel? Worshiping, but did the angel receive worship? No, the Bible says, but he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have what? In other words, the angel said, don't do that. I'm one of your brothers who has the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So according to the Bible, what is the testimony of Jesus? The spirit of prophecy. I don't know about you, but that title is still a little bit vague to me too. Right, because you can say, well, what is the testimony of Jesus? And your brain can go to a whole bunch of different places. But if I say to you, what is the spirit of prophecy? Some have unfortunately said, well, the spirit of prophecy is Ellen White. But that's not what the Bible teaches. 
That's not what the Bible teaches. The question is, what is the spirit of prophecy? What is the testimony of Jesus? Well, in the same book, let's allow the Bible explain itself. In chapter 22 and verse eight and nine, Daniel seems to have a bit of a short-term memory struggle because what we just read, he just tried to worship the angel, didn't he? And the angel, did that receive worship? It rebuked him. He says, hey, don't do that. I'm one of your brethren who has the testimony of Jesus. Well, Daniel gets another vision from the angel and he gets so overwhelmed that he starts doing the exact same thing and starts worshiping the angel again. And look at the interaction. It says, now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, what did he do? I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things and he said to me, now notice if this sounds familiar, see that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant and of your brethren the prophets and of those who keep this, the word of this book, worship God. Now there's a really important comparison here. In Revelation 19, when he had the same interaction with the angel, how did the angel word this? He said, hey, hey, don't do this. I'm a fellow servant, your brethren who has the testimony of Jesus. Yet look here, I've put up a comparison here for you. So the Bible says in Revelation 19, he says, see that you do not do that. I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren who have what? The testimony of Jesus. In Revelation 22, which is what we just read, do you see the same language and same description being used? Yes or no? But he's using a different word here, isn't he? See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the what? The prophets. Now that is a little bit clearer, yes? Is this testimony of Jesus the spirit of prophecy, yes or no? Yes, but what are these things? Well, it is the ministry of prophets. And unfortunately, these days, most people are still left in a place where they don't have a clue what that is. So I want to actually take a real big step back and just ask the question, what is a prophet? Because typically, when I say the word prophet, what is a prophet? What would be some typical responses that you hear? Messenger, Messenger okay, that's good. Often you get fortune teller, yeah? Someone who predicts. Most people I found in the community, they associate prophets with future telling, yeah? Now is future telling something throughout scripture that we've seen prophets do? 100%, in fact, if you haven't, I challenge any of you to look at Daniel's prophecies specifically. He tells the future in an amazing way, which shows that scripture is not just a random book, but is actually inspired by the word of God. But we're gonna take a step back and say, okay, hold up. How does the Bible define what a prophet is? And maybe that can help us make some sense out of why on earth would the Bible use these strange terms to describe prophets, testimony of Jesus, spirit of prophecy, right? Why, why not just say, here are the characteristics of the true church at the end, they keep the commandments of God, isn't that very plain? And they have the prophetic ministry. Wouldn't that just be clearer than saying, and they have the testimony of Jesus? Well, let's see 
What is a prophet? If you guys have your Bibles, please turn to Exodus chapter four. Exodus, what chapter? Exodus chapter four. And we're gonna begin in verse 10. Exodus chapter four and verse 10. And so just for some context, Israel is in Egypt, they're captive, and God is now trying to reach Moses and say, hey, listen, I need you to go and say, I've heard the cry of my people, go save them. And Moses is here being very fearful and coming up with excuse after excuse, which God is having to answer and answer and answer. And this is in the middle of this exchange between Moses and God. In verse 10, the Bible says, and then Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. Now these two different words are different words in the original language. Slow of speech seems to in the original imply that Moses had some kind of speech impediment. Whether it was a lisp or a stutter, I'm not sure. But this word implies some type of difficulty in speaking and slow of tongue is more about the language. How long has he been out of Egypt for? Now, has anyone here been brought up in an immigrant family? Is anyone here a part of an immigrant family? So, I'm the only one in my family born in Australia. My parents snuck me through in my mother's womb, right? I've not been living at home since I've been 18. The first language I ever spoke was Serbian. My parents don't speak English, or didn't speak English, and so they, you know, that's what we spoke at home. Whereas now I find myself, when I'm talking to mum and dad, we still speak Serbian, and yet probably every third or fourth word I say is throwing in an English word. Because as time passes, you just kind of lose it. And I think a lot of people that have immigrated or emigrated from a different country can see this in their generation, maybe in themselves or their children, is that as time goes on with language, it definitely is a thing of if you don't use it, you lose it. And so Moses is essentially out of Egypt for 40 years, and now he's being asked to go back to Egypt. And so he's saying, listen, you know, I'm slow of speech. In other words, I've got challenges speaking, but also I'm kind of slow of the language now too. And look what Moses, uh, what God does. Verse 11, so the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. But he said, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, this is important part. Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him. Don't miss this. Now you shall speak to him and put words in his mouth and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, pardon me, and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be to your, uh, pardon me, so he shall be your what? Spokesperson or spokesman to the people and he himself shall be as a mouth for you and you shall be to him as what? <coughs> as what? You shall be to him as God. That's a weird way to word things. 
right? What will Aaron be for Moses? A spokesperson. And in this function, what will Moses be like? God. Now jump to chapter seven. If you have your Bibles, just turn the page to chapter seven and look at verse one. Chapter seven and verse one. So the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you as God to Pharaoh and Aaron, your brother, shall be your what? Shall be your what? <clears throat> your prophet. That's really interesting, isn't it? And I think this is the earliest in scripture um, definition or explanation of what is a prophet. A prophet is a spokesperson, or another one, someone who speaks on behalf of someone else, yes? And so if you are the Lord's prophet, who do you speak on behalf of? The Lord. If you are Moses' prophet, who do you speak on behalf of? Moses. See, this is the overarching biblical definition of what is a prophet. It is not a fortune teller, it's not a future teller, it's not a predictor, it is someone who speaks to the people on behalf of God. In fact, the role of a prophet and a priest are like the opposite in some ways, yeah? Because as we've already described, a prophet speaks to the people on behalf of God, but a priest speaks to God on behalf of the people. You follow? It is in throughout the whole Old Testament, it is through the priest and the prophet that communication happens with God. And the way they receive communication was uh, through a prophet being a spokesperson. A prophet is a spokesperson. Just a couple of other verses to quickly back this up. Jeremiah chapter one, verse five and nine. The Bible says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you before you were born. I sanctified you. I ordained you a what? A prophet to the nations. Then the Lord put forth his hand, touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Jeremiah was a prophet, yeah? And what did that mean? It meant that God told him what to speak on behalf of God, yes? Just a New Testament example of this so that you see it never got changed. So this is what was, pardon me, so this is Jesus speaking. He says, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by who? Who spoke it according to the Bible? It was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, do you see this? So a prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God. And that's why in the Bible, only about 33% of it is predictions, which by the way, is an extraordinary amount. But the vast majority of scripture is counsel, commands, direction, yeah? Rebuke, encouragement, and all of that is from who? God. That's why, even though the Bible is a collection of sixty, uh, is a collection of over sixty books written by forty different authors, we call it the Word of God. Right? It's not the letter of Daniel or the letter of Paul, even though there were instruments that God used to be able to communicate, but God was using them to speak through them to the people because a prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of someone. A prophet is a spokesperson for God, yes? And so let's learn 
In, uh, let me just, in the Hebrew, the word for prophet is nabi, and that literally means spokesman or speaker. And in the Greek, it's prophetis, one who speaks forth. Yeah, so even in the words, the definition is right there. It's someone who's a spokesperson, someone who speaks on behalf of God. In other words, it's a gift, it's an agency that God uses to be able to speak to the people through. God has spoken to people in various ways, but the most common modus operandi, in other words, mode of operation, has been communication via the prophet. Right, there's been times in scripture where he's used the Urim and Thummim. There's been a time where he used the donkey. There's been times where he spoke audibly, right? But most common throughout scripture is using the gift of prophecy. That's why we have Amos 3.7, which we already had the scripture reading beautifully read today. Thank you very much for that. It says, surely the Lord does how much? Nothing, unless he reveals his secrets to, the servant, to his servants, the prophets, right? In other words, he's using them to speak on his behalf to be able to prepare his people for what's coming, yeah? So how does it work? And I think understanding how does it work goes a long way into being able to explain why does God use these terms as testimony of Jesus, for example. Well, there's a place in Scripture that specifically tells us how this process works. It's found in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2. Now, if you have your Bibles, you can look there. If not, it's up on the screen. The Bible says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. Now, how did this happen? And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the what? Testimony of who? Jesus to all things that he saw. Don't miss this. Who is testifying? Isn't that what a testimony is? Isn't a testimony what someone testified? Who is testifying? Well, it's called the revelation of Jesus Christ. And later on, it's referred to as the testimony of Jesus. Who is testifying? Jesus. And who did Jesus give his testimony to? Mm, you're skipping a step. According to the Bible, who did Jesus give his testimony to? The angel. And what did the angel then go do? He gave it to John. Now, did the angel give John the angel's testimony? No, he was passing on whose testimony? The testimony of Jesus, right? And so Jesus gave his testimony to the angel and the angel passed the testimony of Jesus onto John who then passed the testimony of Jesus onto the church, you follow? And so it makes perfect sense biblically to call the prophetic gift the testimony of Jesus. Why? Because what being a prophet is, is simply passing on the testimony of Jesus. Does that make sense? Someone who is a spokesperson is passing on the testimony received. Does that make sense, church? 
There shouldn't be much confusion. Scripture is quite clear on this. The Exodus is an example for what it's gonna be like for God's people who are in the end of the age. By a prophet, the Lord led Israel out of Egypt, and by a prophet they were preserved. Huh. Maybe biblically there's a case for an end time prophet. Well, let's look at what Revelation, how Revelation describes the end time church. Well, the way Revelation describes the end time church is that they keep the commandments of God, and guess what they have? The testimony of Jesus. Friends, what's the only way to have the testimony of Jesus? Through the spirit of prophecy or the gift and the ministry of prophets who are passing on the testimony that they receive from the angel. That's why when John bowed down and started worshiping the angel, what did the angel say? Don't worship me, I'm just like you, a prophet. What are angels, what's the word angel mean? Messengers. You you follow? Now according to scripture thus far, we know what a prophet is. We've learned how that functions, that God passes it to an angel who passes it to a human who passes it to a church, right? And what are they passing? The testimony of Jesus, right? Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians, what chapter? Ephesians chapter four. And we're gonna start in verse 11. Ephesians chapter four and verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles and some what? Prophets, some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Well, why did he give prophets and teachers and evangelists and pastors and apostles? Why did he give these spiritual gifts? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for edifying the body of Christ. Well, how long is this gonna be around for then? Next verse till we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Has that happened? In fact, that kind of seems to be what unfolds at the second coming. Now don't get me wrong, the Spirit transforms a character long before you put on the immortal flesh. But according to Scripture, God has given these different spiritual gifts, yes? And according to scripture, how long will they be around till? Till the second coming. So biblically, is there another biblical case here to think that God will in the end time still be utilizing or still be sharing his testimony through the gift of the prophets, yes or no? In fact, There's a lot of biblical reasons to think this. There's a lot of biblical reasons to think this. In Revelation chapter 10, there is a description of a message that was going forth in 1844 that was sweet in the mouth, became bitter in the belly. 
And for those who've studied the scriptures, you know that this was fulfilled in 1844 and, and well, before 1844, leading up to 1844 to the Great Disappointment, where there was a massive revival all throughout North America and they believed Jesus was returning and they were so excited and the message was so sweet. But then October 22, midnight passed and then that thing became bitter and they realized that they were all wrong. And the Bible actually predicts this day of great disappointment, this day where where people would think something is happening that's not actually happening. And the Bible says right after that, it says they will prophesy again. Isn't that fascinating? Because what else do we find happening later on in 1844? We find the prophetic ministry of Ellen White getting her first vision. Do any of you know what Enoch named his son? Say it out loud. Methuselah. You know what Methuselah means? When I die, it shall come. Do you know what happened the year Methuselah died, according to the Bible? The flood. Now, don't miss this. Don't miss this. God has a prophet who makes a prophecy by naming his son Methuselah. Around the time of the fulfillment of that prophet, the prophecy, what does God raise up? A prophet. Who was that? Noah. It's interesting. Abraham, through Abraham, God made a prophecy. And that is that Israel will be in Egypt for 400 years. When that prophecy is coming to be fulfilled, do we find God raising up a prophet? Did God raise up another prophet? Who? Moses. Interesting. Daniel, he had another time prophecy of 490 years, the 70 week prophecy, which predicted the very year that Jesus would begin his ministry. And so God has a prophet, he raises a prophet that makes a prediction, a time prophecy. And right about the fulfillment of this time prophecy, does God raise up a prophet to receive that time prophecy, yes or no? Who did he raise up? John the Baptist. Are you seeing a biblical pattern here? God raises a prophet, sends a time prophecy, and around the fulfillment of that time prophecy, he raises a prophet to receive it. Daniel also had another time prophecy called the 2300 days. And the fulfillment of that, guess when that was? In 1844. So Bible-minded people who are striving to be biblical, what would the believers of Scripture anticipate to see God raise up around the fulfillment of his prophecies? And what do we see? He's done that very thing. God is not a God who sets it up and abandons it. Are you following? He's not a God who says something and then abandons you. But he's a God 
who will patiently try and try and try and help and help and help and do everything in his power to get you through whatever obstacles are coming before you so that you can one day be with him in heaven. That is the God of Scripture. So then why would any Bible-believing Christian accept that God has somehow abandoned his followers for 2,000 years, 3,000 years? Who knows when he'll come back? Would that be consistent with what Scripture's shown, yes or no? No. There's a sermon that I preach, and I don't know if I've preached it here yet. I think I may have. But in Genesis chapter 3, as soon as, as soon as Adam and Eve fall in sin, what does God do? It's found in Genesis 3.15. He makes a promise that the Satan who deceived them will be destroyed and that God will restore what's lost, yeah? Were you guys familiar that Eve was not named till after the fall? Prior to the fall, she was just called woman. That is the name that Adam gave her in verse 22 of chapter two. Uh, pardon, verse 28 of chapter two. But she gets renamed after the fall. Woman just is, is in the Hebrew there, Isha. It just is, it's the female version of Ish, which is what Adam was called. It, it, it's the female version of me. But Eve is Chawa. You know what Chawa means? The mother of life. Now, now, just think about this. If you believed your woman has just made you lose everything because she got deceived, and you got the chance to rename her, what name would you give her? How on earth could the mother of life ever make sense in that context? Do you know how? because God promised that through her seed, life would be restored, right? So the one that Adam looked to, to blame for the fall, he now had to look to for the promise of that seed. The only way and the only reason you would rename her the mother of life is if you believe the promise. What's the very next verse say in the Bible after she's renamed? Do you know what? It says that the Lord clothed them in skins. As soon as sin enters in Scripture, we have the gospel. We have it. God makes a promise. If you believe in the promise, you truly believe in that promise in the sense that you live like you believe that promise. God covers you in his righteousness. Chapter three. The first chapter, the only chapter, the very beginning of when sin enters the world. Does anyone really need to know more than that gospel? For eternal life. Does anyone really need to know more than that? Believe the promise, live like you believe it, and trust that God will cover you with righteousness. Yes or no? That is everything, isn't it? And yet, did not God see it fit that they needed more? Yes? Because there's a whole book of Genesis, not just the first three chapters, right? 
And then after he gave them the Torah, is the whole gospel in Genesis or in the first five books of the Bible? Yes or no? Come on, Seventh-day Adventists, what else do you have in the first five books of the Bible? The sanctuary message, don't you? Truly, in the first five books, in what the Samaritans consider the codified or, or what the Samaritans consider to be Scripture, do you have enough there for salvation, yes or no? And yet even though there was enough there, did God in his wisdom see the need that his people needed even more? Well, how do you know? Because you have an Old Testament, don't you? And then you come into the New Testament, don't you? You come into the New Testament. And what are the Jews saying? I know Moses. Where the, I, know, I know the law and the prophet, but this Jesus, does the Old Testament contain enough for salvation? Yes or no? But does God in his infinite wisdom, did he see that his children need more? How do you know? Well, there's a New Testament. Don't you dare let anyone say that scripture does not possess enough for your salvation. But at the same time, God is a God who never abandons. And in the time of need, he gives what's needed. And when scripture said that there would be a restoration of the gift of prophecy, what do we find God doing? Restoring the gift of prophecy. And whether or not there's enough information in the Bible that's enough for salvation, you would have had that in the first three chapters. But as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a follower of the God of the universe, surely our posture is to submit to him and admit that we need what he sees fit that we need. First Thessalonians and John 4, these are two very important verses. In the first one, the Bible says, do not reject prophesying. But then it says, but test all things and hold fast what's true. In 1 John, it says, do not accept all the spirits, but test and hold fast what's true. You follow? Why? Why is it not safe? Don't miss this. Why is it not safe to just accept everyone who claims to be a prophet? Because there are false prophets. And if you accept everyone who claims to be a prophet as a true prophet, if they're not a true prophet, you're allowing Satan to be able to be your guiding voice as though he's God. But why is it also not safe to just say, whoa, 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 whoa. Well then let me just reject everyone who claims to be a prophet. Well, what do we learn from scripture is the gift of prophecy. It's a passing on the testimony of Jesus. Do you think there's safety in rejecting the testimony of Jesus? And so God calls Christians to be thinkers, to know the word, to be able to test it according to the word. And if it's true, what does scripture tell you to do? Hold fast, hold it tight. 
If it's not true, forsake it. Yes? Test, test, test. Why would we need a test if there wasn't going to be end time prophets? Wouldn't the call be reject, reject, reject? But it's not. It's test, test, test. Why? Because God will never forsake his people. God will never forsake his people. And as Seventh-day Adventists, we do not believe that the prophetic ministry ended with the closing of the book of Revelation. We believe that God is still able to and has since Scripture been able to speak through people. Now, that does not make them Scripture, but it does make them people who pass on the testimony of Jesus Christ. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 5. We're going to close with this verse. John chapter 5, and we're going to begin in verse 45. John chapter 5, and we're going to begin in verse 45. If you're there, say amen. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. This is Jesus speaking to the Jewish leaders. And he's saying, do not think that I'm the one who's going to go to God and condemn you. What do you mean? There is one who accuses you. Who? Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe in me. Oof, we got to let that sink in. If you believed in what you claim you believe in, what else, according to Jesus, would they have believed in? Him. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the first century case if I got the Bible, I don't need Ellen White. Bible and the Bible alone. The Bible rules my life, nothing else. Isn't that the same thing? We got Moses, we know Moses, we're disciples of Moses. But what does Jesus say? Huh? I'm not the one, I'm not the one that you're rejecting, I'm not the one that's accusing you. The thing that you claim to believe is the thing that's exposing you. See, because just as the Old Testament told, talked about Jesus, there was a whole nation claiming to believe it, yes? But did they truly believe it? Yes or no? No, because they didn't anticipate what the Bible says was going to come. And in that case, it was Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, right? But in Scripture, do we find case after case, repeatedly, of God's end-time prophetic ministry taking place? Does the Bible say this will happen? Yes or no? Does the Bible say the prophetic ministry will be happening till the end? Yes or no? Does he say that at the very end, the church of God is, 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 is the, the, pardon me, does it say that the exodus is an example to how it will be at the end? Yes or no? And did God use the prophetic ministry through the exodus? Yes or no? Yes. The way the Bible describes God's movement at the end of time, does it describe it as someone who possesses the testimony of Jesus or in other words, the prophetic ministry? Yes or no? 
So how can we then claim to be believers in the Bible and the Bible only, but not believe that what the Bible says will come, will come? Whether we need it or not, I think it's a silly question for us to know. Honestly, I really do. I think, I think we can't really answer that question because I think, I don't know, if you're anything like me, I don't know what I need. And so for me to be an authority on what I need is a really difficult thing for me to say fairly. But one thing we can say fairly and strongly is that if you believe the Bible, should you anticipate what the Bible tells you to anticipate? So there I was at Mission College, not becoming convinced on Ellen White, but becoming convinced on the Bible. And there I was, I believe the Bible is the truth. And I see that scripture repeatedly in many different places foretells that God's prophetic ministry will be there to guide his people to the end. And so I was left in a situation to test. And I challenge every single one of you with full confidence repeated. Get your Bible, get any of Ellen White's books and test according to scripture. And if it's not in line with scripture, you throw all of her ministry out. If it's in line with scripture, I plead with you, do not get rid of the testimony of Jesus. My walk with Jesus, in no small way, has been extremely strengthened through the ministry of that woman. There are such simple things in Scripture I never saw. And then she pointed me to Scripture. And I could just see it as clear as day. As a Seventh-day Adventist church, we believe in the spirit of prophecy. And the reason at the beginning I said that that does not mean Ellen White is because that's far bigger than a person. We do believe that she was a true prophet. We do not believe that that makes her scripture, but we do believe that she is passing on the testimony of Jesus. And it's very possible that there may be another. I don't know. Is there enough for salvation, yes or no? Of course, but that's irrelevant. The mindset is, are we gonna be committed to the Bible with all our heart? Because if we're committed to the Bible with all our heart, we need to anticipate what the Bible says and then be biblically minded to test it to make sure, to make sure that it's in line with Scripture. I thank God for the prophetic ministry because truly, without that gift, and I'm not talking about Illinois, I'm talking about the prophetic ministry, the Bible you hold in your hand is the writings of the prophets. Literally, without the ministry of prophets, what would we know of salvation? And yet God humbled himself to use a human to speak to humans so that we can find the beautiful and eternal truth of him. I think that's a God worth thanking. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much that your Bible is clear. 
Lord, you do not abandon us. And one of the ways we know for sure that you have not abandoned us is because you utilize the prophetic gift. You inspire people of old times in the Old Testament, of new times in the New Testament, and most recently, to my knowledge, the ministry of Ellen White. And Lord, I just pray that every single one of us, that we may not have blind faith to just accept anything that comes across our tables, but that we may not be closed-minded or lack of belief in your word to reject everything, because Lord, we wanna be followers of you. We wanna believe you. And so, Father, if your word has told us that you will not forsake us and that your prophetic ministry may be around to the very end, then, Father, may we not close our minds to that, but may we be filled with belief and may we test, test, test. And, Lord, I pray that every single one of us here may hold fast to what is true. In Jesus' name, amen. message was made available by the Mwellenbar Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their Facebook page, Mwellenbar Seventh-day Adventist Church. is Faith by Michelle McElhaga. Faith is believing that God is and what He says, that He spoke the worlds from nothing by His breath. It's believing He rewards you if you seek Him with all you are, that He holds the book of life, the keys to death. The simple faith of man, how Noah made an ark at God's command. You've heard of Daniel and the lion's den, and we know all about the faith of Abraham. There's a choir of those who've gone before us. Knowing there would come 
This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.